This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. We have enemies within our country. I think it's a combination of demonology and psyop. The citizens are going to rise up and become deputized. I have always supported President Trump. I, I like the way he talked. He reminded me of most men. Joe Biden last night in the debate, hes it's like he's not even a human being. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represented extremism. Can you imagine repatriating all the black Americans that Pat just spoke about to Africa? Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins, faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, or even out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. And look, we won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'll be your host, Daniel White-Hodge. Hey, welcome back. Welcome back to Profane Faith. You know who it is. It's me, Daniel White-Hodge, back here in effect Oh, my goodness. Uh, feels like uh, the time is just um, just moving. It's uh, it's always amazing to me just to see, uh, you know, just how quickly things move around. I was reading. I'm forgetting where I was reading uh, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. I can't remember. It was the Washington Post uh, or it was the Atlantic. Uh, but it was an article looking at the different frequencies uh, of the earth. And uh, the author was making the case that there are frequencies that the earth is changing, uh, whether it be at the poles from the equatorial um, uh, frequencies and that they're speeding up. And so it feels like time is uh, moving forward. And they were making the argument in case that, you know, uh, something was moving around and shaking, uh, cosmically speaking, Um and that, you know, we as humans were feeling, you know, time moving a lot quicker, um, which is interesting. You know, I don't know if I necessarily completely, ha- you know, hop on that. I would I would want to read a little bit more into that. Um, the stuff I have read on when in, in regards to time and time travel um, is, you know, time. A lot of uh, theorists, you know, look at time as an illusion. You know, I mean, think about it like this, right? Uh, when you're having a good time, time flies, right? When it's when it sucks, right? You sitting at the DMV or you uh, sitting in a boring ass church service, um, you know, it time drags. So that right there shows you just the the illusionary, the magic behind just how time, how we perceive time. Uh, we as humans have created elements of time, right? Uh, Sixty second minutes uh, 60 minute hours um you know 24 hours in the day um you know those type of things uh, you know we we've set ourselves up on a you know a gregorian calendar which if you look at other ancient uh civilizations would say the earth is much older than what we make it out to be 
Um, and then, of course, you have others who say, you know, the Earth is much younger. Um, so, you know, it's interesting just to kind of, you know, waffle through components of time, time movement, time dilation. Um, you know, time is interesting because, you know, we know that, for example, a day on Mars is not the same as a day on Earth. Um, so, if, you know, we move beyond our own solar system and and uh, and and uh, and begin to look at, you know, look at other worlds, especially if the worlds are, are bigger than Earth. How do we measure time if a if a planet is, you know, takes 72 hours of our hours and that's considered a day? What does that mean? What is you know, what if it means, you know, if, you know, something like Mercury that's closer to the sun, maybe it's a red dwarf, you know, that's where you have to be closer because it's a less mass of a star and um you know that habitable zone is much closer to that star than you know that that rotation period may be a lot quicker a day may be hour 15 hours or 10 hours right uh so time is interesting we don't have an, a necessarily a universal time setup we tend to gauge everything by earth's rotational period even when we think about light years and how long it takes light to you know to move through the even the solar system our galaxy it's still measured in relation to time on earth um so it's interesting to hear some of these frequencies um i know just you know from talking with you know different people just anecdotally speaking that you know you graduate high school and time seems to kind of just move and mainly because you know so much of us so many of us you know don't like you know didn't like our high school experience um and so it was just great to get out and then once you get out right you enter quote unquote the adult realm and then you know your your life isn't so much subjugated by you know semesters obviously mine still is uh but that is my profession right so again it time is interesting time travel does exist you can move forward in time um, by a strong enough gravitational mass, right? Uh, you get close enough to a, a big black hole, time slows down for you. Uh, and um, that's, a, you know, it's a, it's a weird thing, right? Um, it, and I've been looking at, you know, different uh, theories and philosophies behind, uh, you, know, t you know, going back in time. Um, and outside of a wormhole and even even the construction of a wormhole, right? The use of dark matter, the use of uh, uh, um, exotic components, you know, like that, like such as dark matter, dark energy. Um, you know, it'd be it, it's at least at this point uh, from what I'm seeing, uh, it, it is beyond our technological capabilities. Although there are those that say, uh, especially when you think about um, I am forgetting the guy's name. Hold on. Uh, Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar, probably one of the most renowned folks for uh, looking at UFOlogy and, um, you know, UAP phenomenology. Um, you know, his, his claim is that he worked at Area 51 uh, and, you know, saw this technology and that, you know, the U.S. has reversed that technology uh, from crashed alien spaceships. So it's fascinating stuff. Before you just dismiss it, um, uh, you know, it's, it's some fascinating things. You know, he predicted an element back in 86. I'm forgetting the name of the element. Um, and, uh, it didn't exist yet. Um, and lo and behold, <laughs> uh, you know, a couple decades later, it ended up, you know, they ended up finding it and whatnot. So there's some interesting overlays, uh, with Lazar's story, um, and just some of the claims that he's made, 
Um, but folks like him would say that our technology is at that level, but it's not shared with the public and that it is really something that is secretly kept. Um, but again, I know people say, man, there's no way, right? There's no way that a secret that big could be kept. Um, so I don't know, you know, it's one of those things, right? It's one of those things, uh, but nevertheless, time still feels like it's moving quickly. I'm like, oh my gosh, we are finishing up March and we are into April and, um, you know, bringing it full circle in spring. I'm waiting for my lawn and my soil to warm up, uh, 50 to 55 degrees is, um, what did, uh, what it needs to be. And currently it is, let's see, I can tell you accurately. I have an app, the yard mastery app. If you're into yards like me, you got to get the yard mastery app. It's a really good app. Uh, it gives you the soil temperature and all the, you can, you know, do your soil tests, all them things, input it right into this thing. And it gives you, it spits out a, a customized lawn program uh, for you. Uh, I love it. Uh, but my soil temp right now is 37 degrees. So still, uh, you know, a few, few degrees away from the ideal temp. Um, before we get to our guest, uh, another thing that popped into my mind this week, uh, mainly because I was attending a, well, online I was attending a memorial service for a good and dear friend of ours that passed away recently. Uh, and unfortunately, she was really young and uh, cancer got the better of her. And uh, we're, you know, it's a memorial service. And there's a lot to be said about that uh, service and about the relationship that she had with her parents. She was African-American uh, and she had a really fraught relationship with her uh, with her mother. And um, they ended up having the memorial service at her mother's church, uh, which was a very, shall we say, black church. Uh, I think what stood out um, as I watched online, first of all, the pastor screwed up her name, the enunciation and pronunciation of her name. I think what stood out was one, um, I used to be a part of that um, in all the ways. Uh, sure, I was part of the Black Seventh-day Adventist Church, but I still had all the nomenclatures and the sayings and the discourse and the rhetoric, all the little things that I knew how to say, right? You know, you say the three amens at the end, amen, amen, and amen, right? <laughs> that type of stuff. Those of you who've been in the black church, you already know. Um, so it was a little triggering. It's a little activating. Um, and uh, it, I think what got me was that it's interesting to, to see it now. I haven't been part, well, I haven't been part of a church in years, but, but specifically black church, I've been part of a black church 22, 23 years. I mean, it's been since I've been, you know, an active member of any kind of black church. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating to kind of see that. I mean, I, I've struggled. I know, and this is something that I'm, I'm hoping to put into my own memoir book that I'm, that I'm, that I'm hoping to get out. I also want to get, I'm going to get, I want to get that out. That's I think I, you know, I've shared with you last season that I've just been having a, you know, a real writer's block and it's been, been coming on since the, the pandemic. Um, and, uh, but one of the things that gets me excited about writing again is writing my own story about what I have experienced as a black and Latinx male, um, living in this society, especially working my way through, uh, Christian higher ed. And, um, you know, I, it, 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 it just, it, I, I want to say, uh, particularly, I think where I get, I think where I get a little tongue tied with it is just trying to, to 
get my head around that a i was a part of this and for a lot of people it's still a, a, a major meaning making um system right and i don't want to disparage that i think where i struggle with is just all of the things i mean just the um, the serious amount of god as a male pronoun uh that threw me off right he this he that he this you know he's gonna do that he's gonna do that i mean so that alone always tells me something about the church that always tells me something about the location of where people's minds and worldviews are set in regards to gender um if you're just if you're just naming god still in the male pronoun sense and there's no other variants to that um like i get folks who switch it up like he this she that they this uh them that uh okay that's cool you know what i'm saying um or just not even giving god a type of gender um you know in that sense i'm fine with that too i think you know for me though i can it just says a lot about where the church stands and by and large so often um the black church is still kind of rooted in that now that's not across the board i would say the black evangelical um church which is tends to be very fundamental uh very uh democratic in the sense politically speaking uh in the sense that you know you have somebody like a jesse jackson that you know tends to lean left or maybe center left depending on you know where you see his positioning at and whatnot of political affiliations um but uh, theologically tends to be very 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 conservative um uh, and then you have all the, you know, sexual stuff that goes down in places like that. So I think, you know, it's it's a fascinating thing. I think I know that it got me to start thinking, like, I really want to do something on the black church. Like, where are we at right now? Um, I think about my boy, you know, Dr. John Gill, who's doing some amazing work. He's finally at a full time spot and not working freaking, you know, 12 different <laughs> universities and traveling all over the state. Um I think about that and I think about um, just his positioning and having him having come from that um, and now not being in that uh, his positioning and theological positioning and imagination. When I was teaching in a demon program, um, I had him come out and when we were in Pasadena and he just tore it up, you know, and, and, and talking about that. Right. Because I just think there's something to be said about black humanists, um, about black Gnosticism, about black, black atheism. Um, and uh, black Afro-pessimism, you know, I think I've said it before, you know, I really align myself with Afro-pessimism. And I, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say, you know, I'm a humanist as far as to say Gnostic atheist. Um, I do still believe there is God, um, just not the God that the evangelicals have created. Um, I don't think there's a cosmic person up there that's listening to prayers and, you know, granting wishes and denying, you know, things. I. I I just don't. I, I, you know, I can be completely wrong, but the reality of it is, is that no one really knows. <laughs> That's just it. We as humans are trying to figure our way is out on this planet, um, and there's so many things, so many things wrong with the interpretation of our current uh, Bible. Uh, irregardless if you read New King James, New English Translation, um, right? So I've talked about this you know ad nauseum on the show i'm not going to get back into that and rehash that you can go back and look which i always hope y'all are going back and looking uh at previous episodes you know cherry pick some i, I am putting together a um a hot list on uh, soundcloud so if you go to soundcloud i actually have playlists already set up if you want to you know hear some some of the ones that i've picked out over the last man we've been going since 2017 
uh, what is that, five, six years, uh, you know, you can go, again, check out our SoundCloud account. Um, there's some there's some lists there, promotional stuff, all kind of good stuff, but I'm setting up different um, playlists. And so when people say, hey, what's your best episode? I can say, here, this, this one, right? Here's a playlist of some of the ones I think uh, stood out to me. And that's not to take any back, anything away from any of the conversations or episodes that I've, I've had. I've, I've enjoyed them all, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm just putting some of those out there that kind of, you know, stand out uh, per se. And um, yeah, so anyway, SoundCloud, check that out. I do want to do a special episode looking at, you know, what, what, what does the black church look like in the next 50 years? Because I do think it's changing. Um, and I do think the old form of it, right, where you get up and you, the old people go, hey, hey, hey ah, all that mess, I think <laughs> that's winding down. <laughs> from what I can tell um, and from what I can pick up on, and I know some people probably, you know, be like, I don't know, Dan, I don't know. But, you know, I'm tired of hearing, oh, the spirit is moving. Oh, there's a revival. Man, nigga, we hear that every freaking year. At the beginning of years, a new revival. I don't see that revival. I said that last week about the whole, what was it, Asbury Seminary, wherever they was at, do talking about this revival. It's like, what is the revival? What is what is changing? Okay? It's like when people say, oh, go out and vote. Niggas has been voting for 60 years, and we still have oppression. We still have black bodies being killed. We still have people out there. We still have the means. Uh, we, well, we don't have access to the means. We don't have access to power and resources uh, in this country. People were saying, you know, this 50 years ago, like, oh, if we can just get black people in, in the police, we can just get black people in positions of power and politics. We've been at that and we still worse off than we were. Um, so what do you do with that? <laughs> what do you do with that? How do you hold that intention? How do you hold that? It's been, you know, we got another voting season coming up and people going to be like, oh, you got to vote your life, vote your life on there. You know, you're, it's good. It's good. You got to choose between these two candidates. I'm like, man, we got to have more choices, man. We got to have more choices. It's got to be more than just a binary party system um, because these cats ain't doing nothing. It's like they're having the mayoral thing run off here in, in Chicago. You know, if you listen to this in real time, um, the current mayor, I knew she wasn't going to survive. I knew I was just like, oh, man, she oof. So I knew she was falling out. But then um, these two, they got these two mayoral candidates, right? And it's always between kind of like a, ah, and a, uh, you know what I'm saying? A, ah, and a, uh, right? We always, we always, it usually comes down to that, right? It's just kind of like Trump or Biden. It's like, oh, man, you going to put that out there? So I don't know. That's, that's a whole nother conversation. But I want to put it out there because this is profane faith. And I think we got to have these conversations around you know, what does it mean to be black in the, in the church? Um, you know, it's still, you know, especially if folks who still think it's going to be worth something and still trying to save it, you know, saying, I'm let that motherfucker go. It's done. Like, let's begin to imagine something different. This is where I think Afrofuturism has a role um, and we can begin to think outside of the box. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we have still yet to move from an evolutionary position where we look beyond our own right collective unit, our family, our friends and whatnot beyond that and say, OK, we're going to embrace those we don't know. Right. We we, we can do it on some levels, uh, but not collectively. Um, and as a society, we're very distrustful. So I don't know. I don't know when that change is going to come. I don't I, I honestly don't see it in my lifetime. So that's why I keep saying I don't know what's next. But there's there is a change. There is a change coming. I just don't know what that's going to look like. 
Um, I don't know if any amount of research can can show that. It might be able to. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of things moving at this point. And um, the fact that black people are worse off now, economically, financially, um, educationally, health-wise. Um, yeah, I... Yeah, it just don't bode well. It just doesn't sit well with me. People just telling me just to vote. You know what I'm saying? And, and somehow voting's going to fix it. Uh, because it's not. <laughs> it's not. All right? Let's just come clean with that shit, man. Let's just come clean with it. Um, so, irregardless, that's my little spiel for this, This, you know, this 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 episode. I know for some of you, you'll be like, oh, man. Maybe you just fast forward through this. And now I'll get to, oh, my goodness, my little buddy's here. Um, I'm... Uh, house sitting little dog emerson he just made his way down uh to the basement he was just whining here hopefully he didn't pee anywhere my my, my cat matcha um who's three and a half months old is you know chasing him around and stuff so uh he rules the couch but she rules every other other place man so irregardless um my guest this week uh brother dr ja, uh, justin smith uh, man, I tell you, we had a, such a great conversation just lamenting and talking about being in Christian higher ed. I met Justin a while back, and uh, I really appreciated his perspective. Um, I knew this brother had grown up around, you know, a white dude's grown up around black folk, and he was down. I was like, all right, this, this brother's down, man. He's, he's, he's got some cool stuff. He and I chair uh, the Critical Approaches to Religion and Hip Hop uh, with the AAR uh, if you don't know what that is, uh, highly recommend checking out American Academy of Religion. Um, and even that's going through changes <laughs> too, right? Uh, like who's going to conferences and spending, you know, who has the $15,000, $1,500, to spend on that? All that to say, uh, Justin's a good guy and I wanted to get him on the show. Ben wanted to get him on the show uh, just to talk about life and theology and where he sees himself uh, in relation to being a PhD um, as a white male, white cishet male uh, in Christian higher ed. Um, he teaches at a school I used to teach at uh, that I'll be honest and say I'm thankful I don't teach there anymore, but I'm also thankful that people like him are still there. And, uh, and, and, and you know, just in there doing the shit. That, you know, I, I give it to him. I give it to anybody who's still in the, out there, you know, doing the shit. So, um, yeah, enjoy this conversation. Enjoy uh, what he has to offer. And uh, if you get a chance to look us up, you know, when, you, when you come to AR, uh, do that. And uh, check out those frequencies, fam. See what's going on with all that stuff. Okay? All right, here we go. All right, I hit record. We are live. Um, folks, here we are back again, um, Profane Faith, and I got a good friend that uh, I, I'm. my only regret is that I, I wish that we had hung out when I was actually in California. Yeah. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I mean, uh, yeah. it, it um, I'm like, damn, how did how did I miss that? It, maybe it was, you know, the, the 13 classes that I was teaching a semester. I don't know. I, that, sounds, maybe, maybe. that sounds familiar. And, and, a, and a newborn, you know what I'm saying? Yes. yes. Uh, but Dr. Justin Smith and I uh, co-chair the Critical Approaches to Hip Hop and Religion and with the AAR. If you listen to the show, you know I am an avid fan uh of aar and sbl and uh i've just come to know him and just really appreciate what he has to offer. i was like i gotta get this brother on the show so please welcome dr justin smith brother welcome to the show man 
Thank you. It's it's uh, a pleasure to be here. It's funny. I, I feel like we've been talking about me getting on the show for about five years. <laughs> right, I don't right. been long, but it's felt like it. So I'm glad that we both have a little bit of a break um, in our schedule so we can, oh. we, we can share some time together. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'll start off with the question I ask everybody, baby. What's been happening from birth to now? I know you a Cali boy and I, yeah. I love that. Um, but yeah, what's been going on from birth to now, man? Why higher ed and, and what led you to that? Sure. So I'm an L.A. native. Uh, we do exist. Um, right. A lot of people think that everybody <laughs> who lives in L.A. is from somewhere else. No, my parents are from somewhere else, but I was born and raised in L.A. OK. Now, pu public school kid uh, grew up uh, going to public school, uh, graduated from Westchester High School. Okay. And those of you who keep up with high school sports will know Westchester High School uh, for its basketball program. All we do is win state championships, or at least all we did. <laughs> the climate yeah. in the climate in, in in Los Angeles high school sports has changed in the last decade or so. But okay. um, from there uh, to Occidental College in Northeast Los Angeles, uh, did a degree in uh, religious studies. Played a little bit of D three football. So I um, sacrificed my body to the football gods with essentially no payoff uh, whatsoever no nil uh no actually no 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 anything no uh, <laughs> it was uh it was a tough existence on that front and yeah. then went fuller seminary so you and i both i believe went to fuller and uh did an mdiv at fuller and then went from there to the graduate theological union in berkeley so i lived in the bay area for a uh, few years in berkeley and okay. did a in biblical uh, biblical uh, languages you said a PhD in, in biblical language? Or? No, I did another master's in 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 um, biblical languages. And I mean, and that's damn you know, it's sort of sort of an interesting story. So I'm at Fuller. This is early 2000s, 2002, 2003. Mm -hmm. uh, applied for their PhD program, and my topic was critical race theory and whiteness and the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> and, Good night, and, bro. I know. Small, I know. small, small topics, man. I don't, I don't I was, know. <laughs> I was young. I was young and, you know, full of all kinds of things and thought, well, this would be something that nobody is writing on at that moment. And I was so right um, because nobody at Fuller wanted to take on that topic. <laughs> um, at least that was my understanding. I had a, I had a friend who was um, in, inside some of those meetings and he said the only thing he remembered about my application was that nobody wanted to touch it. And um <laughs> Oh my gosh. So, wow. so I went on. So I, I applied, you know, you know how the game is. You applied about six, seven, eight programs and you hope you get yeah. into one too. Yeah. So during that uh, application cycle, I applied, I don't know, six, seven programs. And um, the only positive response I got was from the Graduate Theological Union, the GTU in Berkeley. Okay. And they said, we don't like you uh, for the PhD at this moment, but we like you for this MA program that they designed to sort of be a feeder program. Okay. Into a PhD. So they said, we can't guarantee that you'll get in, but like wink, wink, you know, if you do well in this program, you got a really good shot. So it just felt to me like either I sat out for a year and kind of did nothing. Yeah. Or go get another degree. Um, and hopefully yeah. that makes me more marketable. Yeah. So yeah. Did that. And then I applied to most of the same programs as before, different topic, completely different topic. Okay. All right. Like not even in the ballpark of the same topic. <laughs> okay. Um, All right. Uh, and got into Fuller, uh, the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and the GTU. And so I ended up in Scotland. So I did my PhD in Scotland for, um, I was, you know, I was there for two or three years and then came back and finished. 
um, finished writing from here. And then right around the time I got done wow. uh, writing and submitting my dissertation, uh, 2010, 2011, there was a job open at APU, mm-hmm. a full-time position in New Testament. A friend of mine who had been adjuncting there for years um, in, in the biblical studies department said, hey, you should apply. And I laughed it off, to be honest with you. I mm-hmm. said, there's no, no, no. <laughs> like, it doesn't make any, why? It doesn't make any sense for me. On, on a number of levels, like my, at that point, what I had envisioned for myself was doing religious studies or biblical studies, but in secular institutions. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Right. So You're I felt right. like, I felt like, you know, growing up in the church, all of those experiences and having gone to, you know, public school, having gone to, like, I didn't exist in that private school bubble that a lot of, a lot of people, I think sometimes in, in our, in our, in our fields uh, exist in. Right. And at Occidental, I had wonderful professors, great people, and I would see my colleagues, my classmates go to them for advice. And it was just, it, it wasn't pastoral. Yeah. And I'm not saying pastoral in the sense of like, you know, go to church, but just sort of, okay, like, let me listen to what you're actually saying. Like, let me kind of meet you where you are kind of pastoral. And so I felt like maybe having a more pastoral approach for students that were going to be exploring religion um, might be helpful just as a way of saying like, look, I've been there. I understand what you're going through. Yeah. Like, let's talk through this. Right. Like in a, in, in a more, um, for lack of better words, caring okay. kind of approach. Right. So APU was not in my plan. Like APU was not even really on my radar. I only knew of APU because Oxy played them in 98 <laughs> and we went out there, we drove all the way out to APU and just got wrecked like 63 to 10. Oh, oh and, damn like wrecked wrecked like <laughs> we should have just forfeited like not even got on the bus wrecked and um my roommate's sister was a was a a, a student at apu so we'd come out here every once in a while okay and say hi to her so anyway I, I applied for the job my friend said well look it's in southern california it's where you want to be he goes i think you'd be a good fit you should apply uh so i applied yeah and i didn't get it um i I've heard different stories. Like I was in the top two, top three, you know, I'm sure you've heard lots of stories like that in your career. <laughs> oh, come on, bro. Right. You know, Oh yeah, you were a finalist. You know, we really liked you. But, <laughs> right. You know, right. Um, and there's always a, but, and it's, it's, you know, maybe somebody has been here longer or somebody's flashier or they have a, a degree from a, a, a higher profile place. So that was, I, I, I almost ended up at Cal state Northridge, man. I, that was, and that was the conversation. I knew the, uh, I knew the Dean in the chair. And for whatever reason, I thought, well, shit, this is right. This is, this is in the, the exact same story was just like, you know, afterwards they were just like, man, you were like the number two, but this right. other person, right. That, that, right. that, that butt is, is right in there. Right. And it was in, in, and so as I left the interview, cause I even got an interview, I got an on-campus interview. And for those who are in academia, I mean, you know, that's a big step. Um, you don't, yep. you don't often get that far in the process. Now, part of it was I was local, which I think helped, but, um, I, I was sort of told why, well, as I got to the end of the interview, I, I just, I just said, uh, to the person, in, you know, interviewing me, I said, Hey, if, um, this doesn't work out and you need somebody to adjunct. I said, I'm happy to uh, adjunct for you. And they said, okay, we'll keep that in mind kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, about a month later, I get the rejection. And then about another month later, I go, hey, would you like to adjunct? And so I started adjuncting at APU in, I think, 2011. So okay. around, like, That's right when I left. Right. So you and I literally just, just like you were walking out the door and I was walking in the door. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is unfortunate. You know, I know, like I know. Our, our paths, you know, again, you know, it's, it's funny how things work. Like our paths 
just kind of kept missing each other until they I, finally crossed. I'm saying. <laughs> so uh started out as an adjunct, I think adjuncted for a couple of years. And then um, APU, and I don't know if a lot of other schools do this, but APU used to have these one-year non-renewable contracts. Okay. So you'd get like a full-time contract for a year with like all the benefits. And then every February, they'd come and pull the rug out from under you and just say... <laughs> You know, it's not personal, but it's a one-year contract. It expires, so you're con- we're not renewing your contract. Right, uh, right. And then maybe at the end of the year, if there was need, they would come back and go, hey, we want to offer you another one year. And, like, let's be honest, when you're a, um, an adjunct, you make, what, 26 grand a year, maybe, if you're May- lucky. Right, if, 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 you're, if you're lucky, right? I got paid $3,500 a class when I yes. was teaching at, at APU. They, back right. in, that was back in that time. I don't know what it is now, but no, I got it's paid. Still about the same. It's still about the same. So so if if you are in a position where you're just teaching everything that they can give you, right? <laughs> yep. And they'll, you know, if it in, in good years where there's a lot of work and there's a lot of students, you know, again, you can, you know, 20 grand, 26 grand or something. But no, no benefits, right? No. It's, it's pay to play kind of thing. Yep. Um, and so when they offer you a full-time contract, that's, you know, roughly twice what you're making plus benefits. I mean, you got, you know, you got, you got to take it. Right. Right. And, you know, during all that process, right. Like applying to any and everything everywhere, um, places I wouldn't think of applying to, but you know, you're like, Hey, I need work. Uh, I got to find a job places. I applied to my wife looked at me like, are you crazy? And I'm like, yeah. And they're not going to hire me anyway, so <laughs> right. I'll go ahead and throw. I'll go ahead and throw a uh, um, an application now. They're not going to hire me. So went through that for about three years, and then there was an opening, and have been uh, full time, long term at APU. Full professorship, I think, is around the corner if things go well. Um, uh, chair of the department now, um, and you know, kind of been writing and researching. Uh, last year, you and I. Uh, came on as co-chairs for Critical Approaches to Religion and Hip Hop, which I'm really excited about. Um, in the midst of all of that, two children. Yeah. Uh, my son Theodore actually just turned four. I love it. I um, love it. When was his on, birthday? Uh, the fourth. Uh, so, no, sorry, the third. The third. January third. So yeah. That's mine, brother. That is really mine. Yeah. 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 That is so, awesome. Yes, he just turned four on oh, the third. So I love it. And then my daughter Naima will be uh, will be two in March. Okay, so we're okay. we're doing all that fun stuff, you know, chasing uh, chasing kids around. We got one kid out of diapers. We got one still in <laughs> diapers. So potty training this summer for my my daughter is. Yeah. So yeah. well, let me ask you this, brother, because you know, I've, you and I have had a lot of conversations yeah. uh, in regards to just you know dealing with the politics, and I think that was. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I, when I was presented to come back, because I had transitioned off as chair for for critical approaches, and I was like, all right, cool, I did my time, <laughs> that was that, uh, to get roped back in. I was like, I was I was hesitant until I saw your name, and I was like, oh, well, shit, that's a no brainer then. Okay, I work with that brother, man. Um, yeah, no, man. So how have you, as a white male cis hat kids yep. teaching in a uh, I, I referred to my partner the other day. I was like, I'm going to be having this podcast with Justin. I said, I call him my doppelganger at uh, at, at APU, man. And yeah. um, how have you navigated some of this time, man? Because I feel like we're in, a, in an interesting time. I yeah. miss, um, what was her name? Unfor- she unfortunately passed. Was it Cheryl? Yeah, Cheryl Crawford. Uh, Cheryl Crawford, man. We used to have yeah. interesting conversations 
Yeah. Um, just around a lot of different things, right? Like, yeah. um, she was really pulling for me to try to get a job in y'all's yeah. department, and and yeah. uh, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> that never worked out. But yeah. I will say that what I appreciated about Cheryl is her ability to just keep it real and and yeah. to to talk in la lengua franca, you know, to to, yeah. to, to use yeah. my you know Spanish terminology. So, how have you navigated some of those spaces, and not just APU, but just in general, man? Yeah. Um, I'd be curious. Yeah, I think so. I think part of it is self awareness, honestly. Hmm. And I and and I think you come by self awareness, um, at least for me, you know, through hard work and um, making a lot of mistakes. You know, saying saying the wrong thing at points and getting corrected and taking that correction, doing the wrong thing at points uh, and taking that correction. I think part of it, in terms of navigating APU for me personally, has been understanding where I'm at. Okay. Right. So what I oftentimes will see is you're at a place and you go, well, let, let me back up. So what I'll, what, what I'll tell students sometimes is um, I'll describe uh, churches and relationships and I would put APU in that same category. Like if you walk into a church on Sunday morning and you go, this place would be a great place to worship except for these six things I need to change. Yeah. And turn right around, get in your car and go home. Yeah. Right. It's not going to work for you. Same thing. Oh, I met this person. This person's great. And they would be amazing, right? If not for these six things that I want to change. All right, turn right around, you know, or maybe date for a little while, have some fun, but then turn right, like this ain't the one. Right, right. right. Um, and APU is kind of the same thing where you you come into it and you go, there's lots of good, there are good things happening here. And the the two things I will always highlight is I have, I have great colleagues, don't always agree with them. We're not yeah. always on the same page about everything, but great colleagues, good to work with. Um, and that And that goes from staff to professors. And I have some really, really good students. Um, and I think one of the things that's probably changed for the better or, or at least differently than when you left is as APU student body has changed. APU is now statistically no longer, you know, mostly white and evangelical in terms of the student body. Man, you were telling me about that. Yeah. What's yeah. The, yeah. So the student body now, and I haven't looked at the numbers in the last in the last few months, but um heading into the fall, I mean, we were looking at um I think the largest demographic group on on uh, on campus are Latinx students, mm, okay. and they represented over fifty percent of the student population. Wow! So white, white white even white 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 students in general, I think now represent something like somewhere between thirty and forty percent of the population, like yeah. thirty and thirty five percent of the population. Get out of here! No, seriously. So it it's been, and that has been a gradual shift. I want to say like over the last five to seven years, plus or minus. Okay. So with that changing then, um what I well what I would say then is I have like really wonderful students, we come together, we work, I meet them where they are. But you also learn to figure out what you can say and what you can't say, especially in a classroom setting, right? Yeah, and yeah. it's something I'll tell people like, yeah, you may be right, but you can still get fired. <laughs> you can you can be 100% in what you are saying, 100% accurate, 100% true, 100% correct. That will not prevent you from getting fired. And my question to you is, and this is part of the tyranny of, of academia. Yeah. And I use that word specifically, tyranny. Okay. Part of the tyranny of academia is if you get fired from a job for whatever reason, right? I mean, for, for I mean, outside of like, you know, you just doing terrible stuff. If you get fired for these kinds of like ideological reasons, the likelihood that you will find another job is really slim in general. And the fact that and the likelihood that you'll find a job quickly 
Right. Basically non-existent. Right. So the game of academia in and of itself is insane. And you know this, right? You, <laughs> every year, I was thinking about this this morning, actually, as I was getting in the car. I have, I, I think about weird things at weird times a day, man. It. I'm in the car at like six o'clock in this morning, morning, I'm moving the car around so, to put, you know, to, to be ready to put the kids in it. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the reality that, you know, almost every year you have something like 300, 400, 500 newly minted PhDs. Absolutely. Into, Absolutely. Right? That's, and that's probably a conservative number. Right. Right. That's just, that's just me kind of rounding down to like a, a manageable number. Right. Right. And in my field in biblical studies in a good year, no, let me refer in a great year, in a great year, there's like 20 jobs in the world, like 20 jobs in the world, not 20 jobs in Los Angeles, not 20 jobs in the country, 20 jobs in the world in a good year. Right. So now you've got 500 people applying for 20 jobs. Right. <laughs> Plus all of us who've been in the game for a minute who right. might be looking to jump and go somewhere else or have a different um, uh, opportunity. And we're in the pool, too. So. <laughs> right. If, Right. So if you somehow because we did a we did a job search, we did a position search uh, about three or four years ago. And I think we had like 200 some applications at one point. Damn. Yeah, it's about right. Right. And so you look at that reality and you go, hey, I got a, I, I've got a paying gig in the field that I'm trained in, that I worked all these years that I spent money on. Right. Student debt, the whole deal. And you ready. You revving out the gate. You ready to go, man. Right. So then you come into a situation and my my thing, my thing is. Don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Okay. Because I get I get professors all the time, you know, adjuncts, others that are in class and they have an agenda thing that they want to push in or agenda item they want to push. And I'm like, man, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Yeah. Push this point in the way that you're pushing it in a in a group of like 35 kids, right? Yeah. And you don't know which one of those kids is going to react negatively to this point. It's a minefield, man. Right. It literally is. Right. You and, and here's the thing that's crazy, Dan, and you know this. You can teach the same <laughs> class back to back. Right. 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 And you could say one thing word for word in class number one. No problem. You come into class number two, say the exact same thing. Yep. Inflection. It's on the PowerPoint, whatever. Yeah. And it explodes in that classroom. Right. Because of the makeup of that group. Yep. So for me, what I'm trying to do is to work with students. I'm trying to work with faculty. I'll use the word be subversive um, in a way that allows me to honor, you know, where students are, where student experiences are, to do the kind of work that I, I feel like is important to do, but also to do so in such a way that allows me to remain here because I've had students also say to me, like, Dr. Smith, you know, how are you still here? How come you haven't left yet? And I'm, which, I'm like, bless your heart. You think I could actually go somewhere and get another job. Um, but number two, what I remind students is I say, if I leave, yeah, then my voice, my perspective goes with it. And there's no guarantee that the person that fills this spot brings the care and concern um, to this that I do. So for me, you can you can work from within to, to create change or you can leave and sort of project back into that situation. Right. And the likelihood that you'll be able to create change from outside, I think, is less. Mm -hmm. I think it just tends to be less, right? Because it's easy, it's it's a bit easier to tune out outside voices, but when people are working inside, you know, to change structures, and that has to do with who we hire and 
um, how we hire and what kind of courses we teach and how we teach those courses and what we value, you know, um, within the department and so on. So that's been part of the way that I've tried to navigate it. And then also too, for me, honestly, man, it's just owning it. Like I'm a straight white man <laughs> in America, right? I'm right, right. So to, to try to, to operate in this space and pretend like I don't have privilege or, well, I'm not like those people or I'm not like this. That's just, that's false. It doesn't matter if I'm like that or not. It doesn't matter if I have the same mentality of somebody else. What matters is when I walk into a room, here's what people see, right? This bo- this body is racialized too. And it's racialized as a, as a white man, right? So this yeah. is what people see. And that, and that works right in my favor more often than not, where people look at me and go, oh, okay, he, he's to be trusted. He's to be respected. He's an authoritative voice all of these things. So then I say, well, fine, if I'm to be trusted and respected and authoritative, let me use that trust, respect and authority to push an agenda or to push, to push ideas or to, to bring out ideas that benefit others. Right. Yeah. That say the best I can do as a, as a, as a white person in these, in these contexts in academia is to create spaces where faculty of color are valued, or to work to create spaces where faculty of color are valued, where students of color are valued to make sure those voices are heard, to step out of the way. Yeah. A lot of people think, you know, the way you lead is from the front. And no, sit in the back. <laughs> sit in the back. Right. Right. Um, help clean up at the end of the event. It doesn't have to be. It's making sure things get on the calendar. It's making sure students are heard. It's making sure pr- you're promoting um, stuff. Uh, your uh, events and 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 lecture tours and, and and all these things, right? Like it's 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 doing all of that work along with whatever you're doing personally. I think in terms of you know whatever your your research interests are and those kinds of things. Yeah, I don't know if that. No, yeah. that makes sense. And I'm glad you talked a little bit about the you know the process in in you know in the academy and particularly the job cycle. You know, which, you know, we had talked about and, and a lot of folks don't know this, you know, when people say, well, why don't you just leave? You know, it's just like, well, yeah. my job cycle starts in around August, September uh, of any given year uh, ends usually around the start of the following year, January, February. If I get selected, I'll get an interview and then that's to start the following summer. So uh, it, it's not just like going on monster.com and, 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 and putting your resume in and then two weeks, give you two weeks notice and you're out. Right. Because right. And then, yeah, the other thing, too, I think, you know, it's like leaving. I, I personally wouldn't want to leave in the middle of a semester because of the students. Right. I wouldn't want to leave right. and put yeah. put the students. I don't care about the universities as much, but the students in that situation where they have to finish out of class. Um, with somebody different and whatnot. And so it's, it's, it's these gates that you kind of have to, to meet to. And it is, it's a game, man. It's a game. And and there's, there's a sense of a lot of transience that happens um, within this and and whatnot. Um, Go ahead. I was just going to say, like, you also get people who aren't in academia who go, well, you're smart. Like you can find a job. And I'm like, no, we're all smart. Yeah. Right. Like you're, 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 you're in competition with a bunch of smart people. So being smart <laughs> isn't the thing. I mean, it's right. like, oh, well, you got a PhD, you're smart. I'm like, pretty much everybody who comes out of a PhD program is smart for the most part, right? It's not that, it's it's the competition part. It's how many jobs are there and how many people. Right. And, and we, you know, we're in a position, academia is in a position to be like incredibly selective. 
Right. Good, bad, or indifferent. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Incredibly selective. That's just it, man. Um. So you know, where do you find yourself, man? Like, like, you know, theologically, man. What uh, What do you make of some of the nationalism, some of the uh, encroachments of uh, white nationalism? You know, how's that? either come up in the classroom how do you deal with that um yeah uh, you know there's that and then you know and then just being in southern california in general because that's a whole different environment i don't think enough people who particularly people who aren't from california don't know i mean right there's a there's a there's a different feel in southern california and in the different parts right you go to orange county yeah. Right now you're dealing with more kind of, you know, the the Republican yeah. side, the Ronald Reagan crowd and stuff, man. So there's some interesting spaces living in Los Angeles or just the yeah. Southern California area that come with that environment. Um yeah. and the amount of white supremacy that exists um and you know in those environments as well, man. Yeah, I, yeah and, and particularly being being a white guy and and what I'd be curious you yeah. know, you theologically, what what is what has gone on there? I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. I mean, so let, let me let me start with California. California is an interesting state. I think um, people who don't live in California have this assumption about California. You know, we all wear flip flops and eat avocados, and we <laughs> right. You know, we we go surfing and we practice yoga, and we're all like spiritual people. You know, with crystals and. You know, we're all super hyper left leaning and, you know, we're just like like weird, nutty, crazy people out here. And I'm like, mm, there are some of those. Yeah, there are. There are. Um, but what people don't really realize is that California is actually an incredibly conservative leaning state. Right. On the whole. And then right. what you end up having are really two pockets in California, uh, San Francisco and, and the Los Angeles area that skew democrat or democratic or skewed you know more liberal um and that's also where the most population is right, right. so right the la area the the la like the broad la area i don't know what we're up to now uh we might be knocking on 20 million in like the la area right yeah. so greater greater yeah. los angeles area san francisco bay area is very similar so you have those pockets right but then in the middle of the state which is heavily agricultural. It's going to be incredibly conservative. Orange County historically has been incredibly conservative, like you said, mm -hmm. almost like a like a red state. Um, but it itself is actually changing. It's kind of more purple now, um, and a lot of that has to do with uh, increasing populations of of uh, 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 Latinx communities in Orange County. Mm -hmm. And then San Diego, uh, because of its uh, the military presence down in San Diego, Camp Pendleton, and so forth, that also tends to be fairly conservative. So you have like these interesting weird pockets, right? And then you can even go. Uh, if you wanted to, you know, to cut that even more, like you go into Los Angeles and you start looking at neighborhoods. So what people don't understand about L.A. too is L.A. is a city of neighborhoods, unlike, let's say, New York, where you have five boroughs and then, you know, you have sections within those boroughs in L.A., like literally it's a neighborhood. And those neighborhoods are constantly changing some more than others, gentrification um, and these things affect the makeup of neighborhoods. So you look at um, parts of L.A. or the L.A. area that you now maybe traditionally associate with the, the black community, African-American community. Those were all white communities in the sixties. Inglewood, that was a yeah. white community in the sixties. Compton, yeah. that was a white community in the sixties. You had black families move in, you had white fright, white people moved out. Those, those demographics shifted. Um, and so LA's demographics and the neighborhood de <clears throat> demographics are always shifting. So it's, it's an interesting place to be. And APU, 
is also interesting, I think, in terms of where the demographics are, are shifting, right? So you're you're shifting now more towards um, Latinx students, less evangelical students. So I think some of the white supremacy element that I think you would have seen that you've talked about mm-hmm. in your in your experience, you know, during the you know the Obama administration and all of that, that has kind of faded a little bit. Um, so that I don't see it as much. But one of the things, you know, I continue to work on with students when I teach Jesus, I'm like, listen, Jesus is talking about this radical alternative kingdom of God. He's not a Democrat. He's not a Republican. He's not a socialist. He's not driving around Galilee in a monster truck with an American flag hanging out the bat. <laughs> this is a first century Galilean Jewish man who understands that he has been called to inaugurate the kingdom of God, but it's a kingdom not like other kingdoms. It is diametrically opposed, right? And so if we take what Jesus is saying seriously, then that has to affect our politics. And I'm not saying vote blue, vote red, vote whatever, but it's how are we looking at Jesus more holistically in a way then that says, my understanding of Jesus has to line up with my politics. And so I teach Jesus in that way. Right. And so I'll have I'll have students in class that are uh, incredibly conservative and I'll have students in class that lean really liberal. And so it's it's a it's a really interesting mix. And, yeah, I I lean. I I, I lean more to the left. Yes. I hear um, you. Yeah. Right. Some 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 could say I lean far to the left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some could say right. I, I lean yeah, I know. really far to the left. Yeah. Um, um, but you know, that's all depending on where you stand. But exactly. what I try to do is, is not make it so much about that and make it more about, okay, if we take what Jesus is saying seriously, what does that mean for us? Right. And that's, that's always the challenge. And what I think has happened, Dan, and I, I, I've been thinking about this sort of unprompted because you and I've talked about this a little bit is where Christian higher education is right now. Yeah. Yeah. The Trump era and post Trump era. And it's in a really, it feels like it's mirroring the polarization of the country, which is either you have Christian institutions of higher ed that are are skewing now really, really, really hard to the right and really hard conservative. And those schools are thriving because financially thriving because there's there's a, a market for that. Yeah. Or you have schools that are drifting in the direction of being at least as some people see them sort of Christian in name only, meaning, yeah, you have a Christian heritage, but you're not, you're not sort of held captive, if you will, by a particular heritage. And then the the institution and, and they're thriving because they're able to navigate that secular space more effectively, right? You get students who come in and go, Hey, I can, I could go to, and no disrespect to like a Notre Dame or something, but like I can go to Notre Dame and not be like a practicing Catholic and I can get along there. I'll be fine. Right. Or, right. You know, I, you know, or, or, or whatever, you know, like um, USC for one. I mean, right. Well, yeah. USC. Right. USC started out Methodist. Right. So I can go to USC and it's fine. Or or even Baylor, like Baylor's Baptist. But you got a lot of kids that go to Baylor and it's like, well, I'm, I'm not a practicing Baptist. Right. But it's a great. School. Right. Um, right. Right. And so, again, and I'm not saying that that Baylor is not confessional. I'm just saying like there's ways that schools can navigate. All or, right. Or, a, a, a local example, like a Pepperdine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Pepperdine Church of Christ. Um, I grew up in the Churches of Christ, so Pepperdine is a school I'm familiar with. Um, so you could go to Pepperdine, right, like SC, and not be Church of Christ at all. Go mm-hmm. there, get education, hang out in Malibu, you know, look at the ocean, get your degree, and and that's fine. And then the schools that are kind of more in the middle, and I, and I suspect that APU is kind of more in that middle space, 
Um, I think where you are might be more in that middle space where, yeah. right. Like you're trying to navigate what that means. Yeah. Those are the schools that are struggling financially because we're not secular enough. Right. Right. To get to, to or, or when we start to pull in students that aren't particularly religious, yeah. they're still coming into a, a religious environment and there are those cultural clashes and those cultural issues. Right. Um, LGBTQ, so on and so forth issues, especially in Christian institutions of higher education. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of institutions that find themselves in the middle are sort of saying like, we want students here, but then we also are wrestling with them not fitting into sort of the traditional Christian ethos, but we also don't necessarily want to go all the way to the, to the far conservative side, like a Liberty university. Um, <laughs> yeah. Kind of thing. And again, you know, like no disrespect for people who go to Liberty. I mean, you're there because that, that meets the need that you have. Yeah. But, right. But like, that's the market. And it's like, I'm not at Liberty for reasons, right? Like one, I don't, they wouldn't want me, but, but two, um, I would need more space, right. To operate, um, to just be able to have dialogue, agree, disagree. So I think that's where higher education is, is one higher education in general is struggling and will be struggling. Yeah. And then number two schools, again, uh, Christian schools or religious schools of higher, um, higher uh, institutions, higher learning that operate in that middle space are really going to be struggling right. to kind of carve out like, well, what, what makes you unique? Why would students come here? Right. And then also why would faculty come here? Like, why would you, hey, yep. like, I can go somewhere else. Right. And, and have no issues with what I say or do. I mean, again, within reason, right. I'm not encouraging irresponsible behavior, but within reason, you can kind of go to a lot of other places and potentially. Right. Um, so if, as a faculty member, like, why would I want to come to one of these institutions <laughs> exactly. outside of desperate for a job? Right. Well, and right. And then there's that. And there's that. I think it's interesting because I think I mean, I'm glad we're talking, having this conversation because there's a lot of my listeners who are either in the process of doing a Ph.D., uh, finishing up a Ph.D. or have a Ph.D. and are asking the question, yeah. the fuck, do I go from now? You know, like, where, do yeah. I, where do I go from here now? Like I got I got this degree. I've got this education um, because, well, two things going back to Liberty. I remember I interviewed for a part time position at Liberty University and it was an <laughs> online interview. Um <laughs> It was set up with the, it was a, a mutual friend and they were like, oh, you'd be great at Liberty. And it took me a second to realize like the Liberty University. I was like, oh, OK, I interview, whatever. And about a quarter of the way through the interview, I was like, this shit ain't going nowhere. So <laughs> I just kept it real with them. And they yeah, because they were talking. Yeah, they started Wait, asking me this conversation. Pull the plug and uh, right. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> right. Right. I was like, this shit ain't going nowhere, man. So, um. But yeah, I mean, I think that's the, so the previous president of my current uh, uh, place of employment, I think he had the right idea. He saw a lot of this stuff coming um, yeah. in regards to us being kind of this center place. And like, for example, at my place and I, you know this, you know, you don't have to you don't have to. Well, there's no covenants to sign any anyway or creeds or whatever. But you don't have to be a Christian, right? So so it's right. in that sense, I feel like in a lot of my classes, I'm back in community college. You have some who are Christian. Right. I'll, I'll get a Buddhist. I'll get a Sikh. I'll get an atheist. Like, you know, and there yeah. it's a nice peppering of that. Um, but he saw it as a way of saying, OK, look, our seminary is struggling. Like y'all are barely like if it wasn't for the university, y'all wouldn't right. y'all's doors wouldn't be open right now. Right, right. Let's turn this into a school of divinity and let's look at this thing a different oh. way. 
Let's look at this thing in a way of saying, how do we think about religious studies broadly? Woo, well, he pissed everybody off on that one, man. That brother was out within a year, man. So, and that's the thing, right? It's the circling of the wagons that I feel like the old construct of, of folks who, you know, who, who, who just lack that vision and right. And then still want to wonder, well, where are all the people? Why aren't they coming right. back to church? Well, um, and then, so also too, Dan, and yeah. you know, this probably as well as anybody, one of the, one of the hidden semi hidden elements of higher education are board of trustees. Oh, Oh, right. Oh. So you have, Eesh. for those who maybe aren't initiated or, or don't fully understand, you know, for every institution of higher learning, you have a board of trustees um, and boards, I think, range in size, you know, from 20 some odd board members on on down. Yeah. And board of trustees will function in different ways in different institutions. Some are fairly healthy, some are, are not. And oftentimes what you end up with with a board of trustees are people who either have relationships with the president or relationships with the institution itself, meaning their their children have gone there or they themselves are alumni. Yeah. And what will sometimes happen then too is, especially if they're alumni, my experience with a lot of trustee members is that they're frozen in time. <laughs> so, yeah. right? so like, oh, yeah. I, went to, I went to Texas A&M 30 years ago. Right. And this was what my experience at Texas A&M was. Yeah. So as a board of trustees member, I want to recreate my experience for this generation of students. Right. Because that's what will work. Right. <laughs> right. Because nothing has changed in 30 years, of course. Right. Because time just stands still. Um, and and so what you end up with are, are, are those kinds of things or you get board of trustee members who have no idea how higher education works like are just completely ignorant of higher education in general. I mean, down to the to what you already mentioned about hiring cycles. Yeah. I've heard of board of trustees members um, standing up before faculty and saying to faculty, well, yeah, there's language in your contract that you don't understand um, or it's not clear. Well, go ahead and sign that contract anyway. And if you don't like it, you know, uh, later on, well, you can just quit. You know, you can just quit in the middle of the year. And I'm going once again. Okay, so I quit in January because I'm unhappy. Right. Um, Application cycle is closed, which means I've got to wait until August, September, October for jobs to come open. I apply for 20 jobs. Maybe I get one or two interviews. Maybe I get a job. Well, that job doesn't doesn't start until, like you said, August, uh, September of the following year. So now I'm out of work or, you know, no health care, no work. Right. Months at best. Right. And that's the best case scenario. That's if you land on your feet, get a job right away, which is incredibly rare. But I've had board of trustees members just not even understand how hiring works. Like, oh, well, well, you just quit and like find another job. And I'm like, this is not Starbucks. No, I, I can't just quit <laughs> this location and then, you know, go over to Pete's Coffee or whatever and right. say, yeah, you know, I got 10 years of barista experience. <laughs> right. Um, and then you'll get board of trustees that have like their own vision of what the university should be that may be different from where the student body is, maybe different from where the faculty uh, currently is, different even from where the administrators are, different from where the president is. And so um, sometimes you may step into a situation where the president's on point and everything else is on point, but you you have a board of trustees or even just some members of the board of trustees that could step in and really direct or redirect the whole thing. And that's something that, so, you know, for folks that are thinking about higher education, you know, looking at the health of the entire institution, sort of yeah. the, the the focus of the entire institution is really important because that the, the board of trustees thing was something I had no knowledge of. Really, right. Like 10, right. 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 I'm, I was like provost, dean, yep. chair, 
All right. Am I good with y'all? We're good. Okay. Um, and then you start to realize, well, wait a minute, you know, like there's these different channels where information is coming in and being filtered down and, and yeah, it's a far more complicated, you know, kind of thing than, oh. than talk about, man. I, it feels like you're talking about our, right. Our board of trustees, man. What were you going to say that? I didn't mean, you mean to cut you off. Oh, no, I was just going to say like, and, and, and so like, that's, I, I don't want to say that's like the, the hidden factor, but, um, I mean, your board of trustees is, is maybe that resonates there, but I mean, the really public example is Seattle Pacific right now. Yeah. Seattle Pacific is like really going through it because of this deep tension between their board, president, students, faculty, right? And you start looking at all that and you're going, okay, um, yeah, this is becoming an uh, untenable situation. So right. I, I didn't mean to step on you. No, no, no. I'm glad you brought that up because that's been going on for a while, man. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure you and I both know people, you know, who are there. And I know that's been coming, that's been coming on for a while. Um, and then I also feel like, again, I'm loving this conversation around higher ed, particularly Christian higher ed. At an institution like mine, you get a lot of folks who talk all this game of social justice and want to change and what we have to do. And they'll even quote some good scriptures that are most that are likely proof texted and all this good game until it comes time to for something that they actually have to do. And what I mean by that is what happens then as a faculty body, when you look around as a white person and you're just like, Whoa, there are three black folks left. We don't, we have, we're an HTI institution, right? Hispanically serving institution. We don't have anybody on staff that represents right. or, or anybody in the faculty, right? That represents right. that right. population. Right. N so yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Well, so no, exactly. I know exactly what you're saying, right? So one of the things, one of the things that I do talk about, one of the things I own is for me as a white man, I'm like I'm on the wrong side of history here. And and here's what I mean by that. What I mean by that is when I am in these conversations, we are looking to make hires. I am advocating against myself, right? I'm advocating mm. against my social location. What I'm saying is we don't need any other, we don't need more white men in my department. We're good. We have um, APU is a historically white institution. Um, and there are a lot of historically white institutions that are now going through the process of trying to reverse that or at least challenge that by prioritizing um, diversity hiring, right? By, by prioritizing hiring faculty of color, women of color, men of color, and so on. Uh, and but here's 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 the hidden issue that people don't talk about with that, right? Right. And we'll get into some other stuff. I got. I got I'll shoot. Um, <laughs> so then here's what happens, and, and people have to start thinking about this too. So you have institutions of higher ed, whether they're uh, Christian or not, but oftentimes happen happens in Christian higher ed, where uh, historically white institutions are are seeking to, um, you know, do the right quote unquote do the right thing. Right. Let's hire uh, more faculty of color those faculty end up being the new hires. If those institutions start to go through financial challenges, who are the hires, which are the hires, what are the hires that are most susceptible to being let go when you start having to cut faculty? It is very often mm. the newer hires, right? Either because of their contract cycles or seniority or all of these other things. So on the one hand, like you can do all of these quote unquote great things to bring in more faculty of color, but you you better hope that you're in a really good financial position going forward. And what we've seen um, kind of pre-COVID and then in COVID and now coming out of COVID is that a lot of our institutions were 
in trouble before COVID. Yeah. COVID yeah. dang near broke the system. Right. 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 And emerging from COVID, a lot of places are really struggling financially. Yep. And, and the unintended consequence. And I was thinking about this again this morning. Um, and I brought this up last year in meetings that I was in at APU <clears throat> as we were talking about making faculty cuts. I said, one of the unintended consequences of what is happening here is there will be a disproportionate number of faculty of color that are not renewed or let go if we do our non-renewals in the way that people are talking about doing it. And I got pushback in a meeting. I had somebody say, no, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> and I'm going, okay, trust me when these numbers come out. <laughs> right. 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 And especially now, again, you also have to think about this. And Dan, you know this it, using the example you use. So let's say you have a department with only one or two faculty of color in it. Right. And one or two of those people get let go, get let go. You could look at it and say, well, over the course of, of the whole of the faculty at, at any given institution, we only let, you know, 20 faculty of color go and we let 80 faculty, uh, other faculty go. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, but what about at the department level? You let the one faculty member of color go. Right. Or you had to. Now you have one. So it's it's you have to do the deeper dive into that. Right. Or even changing the institutional identity or even changing the institutional approach. So you say. Right. And this, again, is, is something that white white institutions, historically white institutions do. This is something that white people oftentimes do. They'll use the language of, well, you know, diversity is really um, literally like skin deep. We have black and brown people here. We're 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 a we're a diverse place. Right. And right. I'm like, okay. But do you recognize that people have different experiences? It's not just you look different from me. Right. But your experiences, not just the experiences that led you here, right, but your day-to-day -day experiences are different than mine. Mm -hmm. Right. And you, right, at institutional level recognize that account for that and be proactive in your programming um in your student life in how you're supporting faculty of color in their publishing and their their research and how you're right it's so it's the institutional stuff it's not just going well look we hired more people of color aren't we doing a good job right great first start thank you for finally recognizing 400 years later that there was something that needed to be rectified right super now have we created lanes spaces for people to thrive in their in their careers are they being fully supported in their careers are they being given opportunities you know to do the things that will advance their career that ultimately help them and help the university and more often than not no it's it's we got you in the door we're glad you're here and it's the same thing with, with students of color right so you start to say like, okay, uh, APU is a, a Hispanic serving institution. We didn't. So it's not as though seven or 10 years ago, the institution got together and said, hey, what we really want to do is we want to reach out to Latinx students and we really want to, to make it a priority um, to invest in Latinx students. It's all of a sudden you woke up one day and you looked around and you went, hey, our numbers say that we're a Hispanic serving institution. We've been designated that by the deport by, by the, the uh, department of education while you're while you're cutting the spanish program by the way while you're while you're, oh, you're no. cutting faculty in the spanish program um uh while, while there aren't like dedicated programs right there's so far as i know there's no chicano chicana studies yeah no, no latinx studies right right uh, it's there will be courses in different departments that you can you can take that you know speak to those experiences but you know there's not like dedicated programs on that. Um, 
So now you're, you're going, well, look at what we've done. You know, isn't this great? Like we're a diverse place. And I'm going, yeah, but it's not a welcoming place necessarily, right? It's not a place that is set up to, again, help with the success, like the full success of students of color. And so some of that then is putting your pride aside as a white person and going, it's not all okay. It's not all working. How do I help? How do I work? What do you need from me? Do you know? Do I need to be a voice in a meeting because you're saying the same thing that I'm saying and you're not being heard, Dan? Right? Right. You're in that meeting, and it's and it's it's a weird place to be, right? Because you right. don't want to talk over anybody else, and you don't want to usurp anybody else's space. But you find yourself in the in these in, in these instances where it's like there's faculty of color that are saying we need X and people are going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then you get like a white person in the room that goes, you know, we really need X. And like X, of course, yes, we 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 really need this, right? And 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 you're going, you look around the table and you're like, you she literally just said that right uh, a minute ago. Uh so it's it's also that kind of thing. And I, I I you know, you know what I'm I think you know what I'm talking about. I'm sure you've been in more than your fair share of conversations about what do we do and aren't we doing a good job and it's like no it's not enough and and i think it's you know it's the the, the challenge is always change you know is institutional change and changing systems and i think when we when we start trying to tackle that in higher education i mean that's a that's a much slower agonizingly uh slow process um yeah and that's where, but that's where yeah. the work is honestly no and that's and that brother you said it i mean that's that is where the work is and i mean i think for me that's where i've gotten just just overly frustrated with the with the process of of that that churning it's i reckon it like the to the um i'm i'm a nasa space buff so i remember when they used to roll out the the shuttle from the from the bay right and that whole little tractor thing man it was just it just grinded rocks down and like and it just moved you you could run faster than this thing man um but that's the way i feel and also oftentimes i feel like because people are looking around like well what do you mean we don't have i mean i just we, we just hired two africans and i'm just like yeah, yeah, you you still looking at the skin color thing. It's just like, right. and these cats, right. no disrespect to them, they are brilliant in their fields, but they're not connected with the African-American experience right. and, the, and the black experience within this. And so students don't necessarily feel connected with that. Right. Um, let me, let me, cause there's so much to say on that, man. You, that's, that's the, that's the, uh, the soup and the hornet's nest all together that I feel like I'm swirling in right now, man. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and trying to navigate, um, with that, uh, how then do you see change? Um, and then I, and, and, and that's a big question I get. Cause I also yeah. want to ask you too about hip hop. Cause I know yeah. there's somebody who's listening to this and be like, wait, where did the hip hop come from? Why didn't y'all get to that? So we'll get to it. Yeah, hey, we, we, I mean, we could do two part. We could do part 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 A, part B. We gonna, we probably gonna have to, man. Um, I got time today. I got time. Um, so do I. Um, so change. You know, I think. All right, so I think change has to be multidirectional. Okay. Um, so some of that change is as you have students who are coming in and are changing your your student body. Uh, demographically, again, ethnically, culturally, racially, religiously, socioeconomically, and so forth, um, they will uh, start to drive 
some of that change in terms of expressing in various ways what they need or don't need. Okay. Um, and so navigating some of that space and saying, okay, let's really listen to, to the students, right? These are the people that are here. These, you know, the, for lack of a better word, these are the customers, right? They're paying right. money. So finding some of that, right? They'll be driving those conversations. Um, being careful in your hires, right? Um, so some of what you just pointed out, so you can bring in somebody who's a person of color. It doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't or, or that they will be on board with sort of what your ethos is within the department. And I think, again, that's that it's that literal sort of skin deep approach of, well, look, we have lots of, you know, black and brown people sprinkled around the university. Isn't this a wonderful thing? Right. And you kind of go, yeah. But are they all parroting, you know, kind of the same talking points or is there this space where people can say, no, this isn't working and here's what we need? Um, I think change uh, starts at the top. I think we need to have more provosts of color. I think we need to have more vice presidents at universities. We need to have more presidents. We need to have more women. We need way more women of color um, in all of these places. And, and again, that doesn't, it's not a magic bullet, right? It's not a silver bullet where you, hey, we'll put, we'll kind of plug in people in these spots and everything will be fixed. But it, your, if, if your administration is not representative of your faculty, if your faculty is not representative of the student body, then there's disconnect, right? It doesn't work because we're not going to be on the same page and we're not going to be, you know, uh, thinking about, again, how do we help students of color thrive? How do we help faculty of color thrive? How do we help staff members of color thrive, right? Let's not forget about our staff members, right? The people who do all of that extra work, all that hard work that we don't want to do as professors, you know, I, I spend too much time getting my PhD to, you know, photocopy, right? Exactly. 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 Oh, man. Part of the problem is you got too many people in academia that never had a square job. You got a lot of people who came into academia and all that. they've ever done is work in academia. You got to say they that never again. never punched man. a clock. Yeah. I worked union. I worked in a grocery e store. Exactly. Exactly. Bruh. I, Bruh. I did janitorial work. I, uh, that was not in my pre-biography that we were talking about. Um, <laughs> I, I did deliveries for a hardware company. See? Um, See? You know, whatever, right? But you got a lot of people who just kind of went undergrad, grad, PhD, and, and, and there's that that sense of entitlement and that works, that, you know, at all levels. That's yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I think, again, uh, board of trustees changes too. Um, are, are your board of trustees representative of the institution where it is now, not where it was 30 years ago? Um, you know, again, va valuing faculty of color, um, get, get, giving people time to do research, giving people time to publish, giving people time to present supporting that financially because you and I both know I mean that's what it comes down to do you have money to travel do you have money for AAR do you have money for SBL do you have money um do you have course release you know are you teaching four classes and trying to write and research at the same time um <laughs> right what's have... your what's your advising load right you know right saying? right yeah how many students are you advising um and then are we creating spaces on campus for faculty and students to share their work Right. Like if you can't even get heard on your own campus, Bruh. how how are we expecting you to be heard elsewhere? Right. So we have all of these experts. Right. Isn't that what higher education is about? You gather all of these experts to your school. Right. To teach in these programs. Whew. And you they can't get time <laughs> or space or a venue right. um, to share to, you know, 
to present their work, to promote their work. So many schools are terrible about self-promoting the people that they have. Until it's time to talk about diversity, and then we get to you know trot out you know Professor A, B, and C, and isn't it wonderful that we have faculty of color and da 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 da? And then it's like now go back to your office, and we don't want to see you again until it's time you know to talk about how wonderful we're doing. Um, so I think you know I don't know if if, if that's kind of where you were thinking, but yes. Um, I, so again, when I, I'm talking about like multi pronged approaches to change. Oh, brother, I mean. And that's just it. I mean, that's exactly, exactly it. I mean, I think that what you're engaging in, I mean, one of my ideas was like, we should gut the board of trustees and have invested either parents or people from the community in and around that community. Like, for example, where we're at, I mean, I think about Albany Park, the North Park in general yeah. area of Chicago, having people right. from that community invested in right. that board of trustees to actually say, this is what we think we should be going on. When you talk about, I have been at my institution now, I'm working on my... Well, February 12th, uh, I, I'll be... I'll start on my, uh, or February 16th, I'll start on my 12th year at my institutions. I've only talked about my research once on campus, once, right? Yeah. Um, and I think about that and I'm just like, God damn, like you said, if you can't even get the representation on there, man, whoo, these are, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that that's, <clears throat> so that's what I'm talking about. It's, and then also, and I don't, I don't know if this is going to sound right or not, but it's also normalizing this. So instead of it, instead of it becoming like some weird special event, you know, um, every, every so often, or, Hey, let's put together a bunch of stuff for black history month. Right. And then we don't talk about it again until February. It's what does it look like to normalize, um, these expressions, to normalize these presentations, to normalize these opportunities from August to June or, you know, August to May, not just, well, in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, we're going to, you know, have tacos on the lawn. And it's like, <laughs> and one of our faculty, you know, one of our Latinx faculty will come and speak about blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, guys, do better. Um, right. It's, it's right. It's, it's not, it, to me, it's about not sort of prepackaging all of this and going, well, we're only going to talk about this at this time of year and saying, no, no, no. This is something we value all year long. These are the faculty that are doing this work. We want their voices to be heard. I mean, you know, the ideal obviously being like, hey, I'm working on something. Can I get some of these ideas out in this community uh, where I where I work before I take it to AAR, SBL, or right. before I take it, you know, to publication, right. before whatever. And it's sort of like most of us now are in this space of, and, and I have to imagine this must be happening at a lot of institutions where we're all trying to cram our work into a long weekend in November. <laughs> so those of you who don't understand, AR right. and SBL meets every year the weekend before Thanksgiving. Thank you for that, whoever did that, because right. it's not as though that time of year is right. terrible. To oh yeah, it's it's the right. lightest time of the year. Yeah, it's easy. Just jump on a plane, you can go anywhere. <laughs> Book on Southwest, I'll take care of you. 
Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Southwestern Spirit. Oh, by gosh. Um, yes. <laughs> so, so literally, right. And they'll, and they'll talk about the regional meetings too, but then we also kind of know that the regional meetings don't carry the same punch. Right. Right. So right. If I'm putting something on my, on my um, resume and it says, you know, I presented at the regional meeting, like that's nice, but the national meeting is really, or international meetings are kind of what we're looking at. So now you, you're, you're having everybody really trying to cram all the stuff that they're trying to do into a long weekend at the end of November instead of saying, here's all of these other opportunities um, that could be taken. And, and I'm sure there's institutions that are doing this well, but I think this has to be the standard, not sort of the exception um, to say we're giving we're giving students and faculty um, ample opportunities to share their work, present their work. We're publicizing these things. We're making it an important part of the academic life of the institution. And it's not just, yeah, every once in a while we do something. And isn't it wonderful that we did something for Black History Month? Right. It's like you should do something for Black History Month. Always, period. That's given. <laughs> done. Now, right. what else are we? Right? right. Like you should be doing something for, you know, Asian American Pacific Islander, you know, um, History Month. Period. Done. Done. Right. That that's just already planned in Hispanic Heritage Month. All these different things, right? You know, Women's History Month. Everything. The, 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 now, let's keep you know, keep that same energy, right? Right. Keep the same energy year long. Not just oh, we're done for the month. And, and we'll move on and we'll come back to this in here. So th I, I don't know, Dan, I mean, th those kinds of things are kind of what I think about. Absolutely. No, I w I'm with that, brother. I'm I am. I'm totally with that. And that's where I keep coming back to, you know, um, in regards to the support rather than just the talk of, oh, we care for our faculty. It's just like, nah, let's let's put the money in and and even the process of getting reimbursed. Right. I feel like, man, I had mm -hmm. to jump through hoops to get reimbursed. It's like, well, what about this receipt and this? I'm like. Damn, so now I got to go through the questioning. I got to go through the fifth, you know what I'm saying? So anyways, all that to say, man, I know our time is running nigh, but how did you end up a hip-hop head? So um, my parents are from West Texas. My parents grew up around Abilene. And um, that's what's up, man. So if you know that, if you know that part of the world. Oh, uh, yeah, I know it well. Yeah. My parents moved out to Los Angeles in the late 60s. My dad moved out for work. Uh, things were kind of drying up out there. And I did not really grow up in a musical household, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like my parents, my parents had records. They had music. My dad had eight tracks in his Datsun uh, station wagon. And I remember being a kid sitting in my dad's car and he'd play, you know, a lot of country music, but kind of like a lot of old school country music. Um and my mom was kind of more of a pop radio fan. Um, but music, honestly, was just kind of in the car. So if we were, uh, you know, picking up groceries or doing all that stuff. Um, so grew up in Los Angeles, kind of started out just listening to, to pop music. So when I was really young, you know, a lot of Duran Duran, a lot of minute work. Yeah, come uh, on. Come on. Uh, I'm trying to think what else. I used to bop to, uh, you know, still got a lot of love for Hall and & Oates and, yeah. you, know, what was, you know, whatever was Michael Jackson Thriller when I was a kid. And I Ooh. mean, it was huge. Yeah. Had buttons and everything. Um, and then, you know, memory is always kind of funny, but the way I remember it, the way I really remember it was I was laying on the floor in my bedroom and I was probably fourth or fifth grade. And I had a little, I had a radio, just okay. a little radio. Okay. And I was just had it on the radio. It's like, you know, one of those things like you would, again, this is probably aging myself quite a bit, but you know, in, in, in some schools you would do like a candy drive, mm -hmm. um, like you sell candy and all those things, you'll go to go door to door. And I don't know if we still do that. Um, 
I think see kids outside of supermarkets sometimes selling candy. Right. But anyway, um, and and so if you sold enough candy, like you get prizes. And so I think it was one of those like really crappy, um, uh, like a had like a tape deck radio, whatever. So I'm laying on the floor and I'm just rolling. I'm just literally rolling through um, radio stations in L.A. And I go through all the FM stations. Nothing, nothing's really hitting me. You switched over to AM, going through all the AM stations. I get to the end of the AM dial, fifteen eighty K day. Was the only hip hop station in Los Angeles at this time. So this yeah. is mid to late eighties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was the only all hip hop, the only all rap station. So you would hear some rap songs on um, on pop radio. Fifteen eighty was the only one. K day. Mm-hmm. I stopped on I stopped on K Day. That was it, man. There was no going back. I was done. I, I don't know if uh, if you want to say I was home. Yeah. Um. An- another memory that I had was we, and again, this is from a bygone era, but my parents kind of had sort of like a, a semi formal living room. Like there was a couch we weren't supposed to sit on. I don't yeah. know if anybody had those experiences. Oh there yeah. Was, all right. So there was a love seat <laughs> and these two chairs that yeah. were like for company. Yeah. Like you can't sit on those. Okay. And next to it was my parents' radio. And they had like one of those big radios, like big, like stereo with the turntable. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And my brother and I were sitting in the living room waiting for my mom uh, to go. We were getting ready to go to school one morning, this the same time frame. And uh, we were listening to the radio and paid in full. Came mm. on. It was, the, it was that extended seven-minute remix. Yes, yeah. Right? Yeah. And I remember my brother and I were talking about, we, we were talking about how long the song was. Cause you know, most rap songs in the mid eighties were relatively short, like a couple of minutes, like two, three minutes. Right. 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 This is seven minutes and it just keeps going. And I re- vividly remember listening to paid in full that seven minute remix. And it just blew my mind. Wow. And so from that point forward, it was, it, it was, you know, my first tapes were, you know, Kumo D and salt and pepper and LL Cool J bad. And, uh, Big Daddy Kane, yeah, Long Live the Kane, yeah. Um, then a few years later, uh, you know, uh, De La Soul comes out with Three Feet High and Rising. I'm all over that. I'm listening to. Um, at one point, they were playing the Wake Up Show from the Bay Area down on K Day, like okay. on Saturday night. So you listen to the Wake Up Show. Um, they used to have some great, great mixes and mixing shows on K Day. So I'm listening to all of that. Um, my friends and I, you know. LA again, public schools are kind of funny. I lived in a neighborhood that was probably 80 or 90% white. Okay. But the schools that I went to, um, the student body was like 60% black. Um, and so my colleagues and I are all listening to the same thing. So the cl- my classmates and I are all listening to the same things and we're talking about these things. And so I wanted to be educated about it. So I'm listening and I'm I'm watching and I'm reading. I'm reading anything I can get my hands on. It was back in the day when you had to go to the encyclopedia for information. So I remember <laughs> Yeah. So, so late eighties, early late eighties, early nineties, we're getting into you know uh, apartheid and pushing back on apartheid in South Africa. I'm going home. I'm pulling the S uh, encyclopedia off the shelf and I'm reading up everything I can on on uh, South Africa. You know who the president is and what's going on and what's the history and so I can be educated about these conversations. And um, around those times too, so late eighties, early nineties, you know we're heading into the golden era of hip hop. I'm starting to listen to. You know, 5% rap, you know, I'm listening to Brand Nubian. I'm listening to okay. KMD. Okay. Um, I'm listening to uh, Poor Righteous Teachers. I'm listening to um, Gangstar. I'm listening to anybody and everybody that I can get my hands on. I'm off. Obvi- I'm listening to the West Coast stuff, too. I'm listening to Ice Cube, uh, NWA. Um, 
the source became my Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there were two things that I read. Well, three things, I guess, that I read religiously. I read the Bible, I read the source and I read the sporting news. So some of you may remember the sporting news or may not. It was a, it was an entire newspaper dedicated to sports. You'd get all the box scores, you get all that stuff. So I had one friend who'd bring the sporting news and then one of us would bring the source and we would read, I'm serious. I'm like, read the source. Like it was the Bible. Who's an unsigned hype. What's the, um, yep. you know, what is the, uh, the hip hop quotable who's on the cover, you know, how many mics they give in the, these new albums, mics, yes. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and then argue about it, right? Yeah. Well, how did this only get like three yeah. and a half mics? And, you know, um, <laughs> look at the singles and all of that stuff. And then we would be sharing music back and forth. You know, I remember in junior high school, I'm walking around <clears throat> during recess, listening to slick Rick on my headphones, uh, listening to too short. Um, yeah. So honestly, for me, it was really an organic experience of, landing landing on k-day and never really leaving and i'll be honest man like for i would say probably from like 87 until about 2000 i didn't listen really to anything that wasn't hip-hop um it wasn't really until file sharing started to come in in the early 2000s yeah that i started listening to other stuff because this is something i tell students too i so say you have to remember when I was growing up, you usually had money for one CD or one record or one tape. That's Maybe it. you can get two. Things. That's it. But you had to make choices. And uh, Fonte from Little Brother was talking about this one time on um, on uh, Quest Love Supreme. I think it was the the uh, Q-tip episode. He was like, "Look, you could you could take a flyer on Pearl Jam or you get Illmatic. You had a choice. What are you going to get? I'm, I'm getting Illmatic all day long. Like <laughs> Pearl Jam might be great and people are loving it, but I'm like, I can't afford both records. So right. I'm I'm going to stick in, 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 in this space that, that speaks. And so for me at a very, very young age, um, fourth grade, fifth grade, it became very apparent and I don't know how aware of it I was, but it became pretty apparent to me. And there were missteps along the way, of course, but, um, I was a guest. I'm a guest in hip hop in the house of hip hop. Mm. I didn't, I didn't build this house. Mm. Um, I didn't put the windows in. I didn't, I, I I didn't put one stitch in the doormat. None of this. I'm I'm a guest, and this music wasn't created for me. It wasn't created by me. It doesn't speak to you know. It doesn't come out of my personal experience, right? Like as as much as I want to talk about how hard it was being a white kid growing up in Los Angeles in the '80s, it wasn't. Um, you know, but there was some. There were there is truth in this art form. In all of its forms, right? Graffiti, breakdancing, yeah. DJing, yeah. MCing, right? Four pillars. There is truth in all of this, and that truth found me. Mm. And so for me, what I have tried to do is to cultivate um this spirit of of, of being a good guest. Okay. Okay. Hasn't always worked. Um, you know, I haven't been perfect. You know, they're they're have been pictures of me, uh, not what you're thinking, uh, pictures of me in the late eighties with my red, black, and green medallions on, uh, mostly my peace medallions, but you know, there was an African medallion that popped in there a little bit. This was before the, the era of cultural appropriation. I really haven't that full language. Um, but you know, those moments of, of, of trying to understand and grow and learn, um, and then being corrected, but then also, um, maintaining like being here, 
like there was nothing worse really and you've seen this you grow up with kids who one summer were listening to like bob marley and like pop music and then the next summer they came or the next uh fall they came to school and like raider starter jackets right and you know khakis and these are like white kids from my neighborhood and i'm like what what did you guys do this summer like, right right was there like an initiation was there a club right like did, like did you guys get kidnapped and like somebody dressed you and like dropped you off in front? like what like what what transpired uh, in those two months that right you know kids that were sur- literally like kids that were surfing you know uh, in the middle of the summer showed up talking about 40 ounces and in, in, in uh, nwa and stuff and so and and those same those same guys are you know listening to something else now or are not really part of the culture so i think it's a desire to understand a desire to listen a desire to recognize that this isn't about me and it's not for me and so understanding sort of that guest relationship um the guest relationship that i have to it and really honoring that yeah i think has been man i love this brother um and i want to explore that more i don't want to keep you i know this you know the time is is there but i appreciate you sharing that and talking this has yeah. been a really rich conversation. And the thing I love about these conversations is that I don't really necessarily even have a direction other than to ask the one question at the beginning. And I love that we really got into higher ed because I think that's a conversation that not a lot of us have uh, in yeah. these spaces, at least as I've been going to AAR and talking with PhD candidates, people who want to get into the PhD program. It's like, what do I expect? I know I wish I would have had this con- heard this conversation right. 18 years ago um in regards to okay what what can i expect uh in yeah. this field oh uh, can i say the one one more thing yeah about go that? for it we go so those of you who are listening that are phd candidates um or you're finishing up and you've been told this let you know let me put this to rest what i was told and what i've been told for the last 10 years or 12 years is that in the next few years there's going to be a lot of retirements and there's going to be a lot of jobs opening up. Yes. Yes. Okay? I've been told that for over a decade. That over. is probably not happening. So for those of you who are holding out hope for this huge wave of retirement right. and open positions, right. I would love to be more positive and say, yes, of course, you know, it's on the way. My honest response would be, it probably isn't either right. because people aren't retiring or when they do retire, not all of those positions get refilled. So you could look at places and go, Oh, there's five people here that are retirement age. Well, they may only fill two of those positions. Right. Um, or they might close the program. I mean, you never know. So so for those of you, sorry, we, we stuck this at the end. You had to oh, wait until you get that nugget. Um, for those of you who are just kind of waiting for this wave of retirements, exhale. Because um, I don't I don't know that that reality is coming um, in the way that it's been sort of talked about. Exactly. Exactly, exactly, man. And I yeah, there's so much to unpack with that. I mean, I probably should do a, a special on on just the 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 the, the higher ed uh process and whatnot. But I was told the same thing too. Um and that was wow, that's gonna be twenty years this year is twenty twenty three. I remember right around two thousand three, I was being told, Oh man, you 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 getting into higher this is the perfect time, it's gonna be retirements in a few years, and it's gonna be a wave and you just be you're gonna have your pick. Right. <laughs> No. <laughs> oh Lord. Oh brother. Well, listen, man, where can yeah. folks find you? Let's say somebody's um, listening and they're like, Hey man, we need to bring this brother out. We got a position for him right now uh, uh, you, at you this can, spot. You can find me honestly one place. You can find me at 
jmsmith at apu.edu. Okay. I do not exist in the in in social media. You you won't find me on TikTok. You won't find me on Instagram. You yeah, won't I'm find me that. on Facebook. Yeah. Um, my mental health cannot cannot support uh, social media. Yep. Um, I, I figured out um, about five six years ago that it was better for me as a husband and a father and just as a person to not be in that sphere. So you can always find me um, at, at apu.edu. Uh, and, uh, you know, hey, f- push come to shove. I guess you could always uh, reach out to Dan. And say, Dan, how can we get a hold of this cat? Um, I'm I'm not hard to find, but I'm not easy to find either. I, I'm with that. I like that. I like that a lot. A I'm, mystery. I'm trying to get a little bit more like that myself, man. All this social media stuff. Well, that's for another podcast. Now, I'll tell you I, what we need to do one on that. We can talk yes, about that. Yes. Yes. Absolutely, man. Um, okay. Thank you so much, Justin. Appreciate, no, appreciate you, it. man, and the work that you're doing. I've loved it. I've loved it. I can't wait to do this again. Hey, everyone. I'm Nate from the Full Mutuality Podcast. I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into this show. We're so grateful that you've decided to spend your time with us. Seriously, Dan, Gail, Jessica, Kathleen, Scott, and the rest of us here at the Dauntless Media Collective couldn't produce content like the show you're listening to without your support. I'd also like to invite you even further into the conversation. Right now, there are some great discussions happening over in the Dauntless Media Collective Discord server. If you're interested in chatting with other folks who are deconstructing and decolonizing the oppressive traditions that they came from, please feel free to hop on into the server. If you don't know what Discord is, it's a place where communities can gather online for chatting on a wide variety of topics. In our Discord server, we have channels devoted to general deconstruction conversations, some meme sharing, therapeutic venting about whatever religious bullshit you're currently dealing with, and even a channel specifically devoted to talking about the latest episodes of the podcast you're listening to right now. I hope you'll join us. You can log in directly to the Dauntless server by clicking the link in the show notes or heading to dauntless.fm and clicking the link in the top banner. See you there.